0: We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Well, good evening, it's a joy to be here with you, and uh, to pray with you, a sweet hour of prayer, amen. I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5 this evening, 1 Timothy chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there's one on the back seat there, or a back table, I should say. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Uh, it has been a few weeks since I've been up here. Uh well, of course, you know, uh, last week I was not where I planned to be. Uh well, at least on Sunday evening I was here Wednesday night, but, uh, but the Lord had other plans and I'm grateful for Pastor filling in. Uh as he's well equipped to do on the uh on the spry. And uh but uh, I'm glad to be here this evening and to be with you studying God's word. If you Look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 5 this evening. We've been looking at uh, verses 17, or last time we started looking at verses 17 to 25. Maybe your Bible has some kind of subtitle like this, Honor the the Elders. Uh, That certainly is part of that passage. That's the subtitle that uh, my uh, study Bible has here. Uh, Certainly that's what Paul is talking about uh, in the first two verses here of this section, 17 and 18. We looked at that and treated that portion last time. Uh, But there really is more to this section than just honoring pastors for their good work, good labor. There's also the uh, more negative sides of things here in which Paul addresses the process for disciplining sinning elders. And so uh, I've generally titled this section uh, treatment of elders, and it falls within a larger category i don 't expect you to remember this you don 't see my notes that often, but in a larger kind of section of what i 'm calling church member relationships, which begins all the way uh, back at in the, the beginning of chapter five, where Paul talks about how we are to treat one another in the church, um, whether man or woman, young or old, and then widows, he spends a and treats that issue for uh, a number of verses here, verses 3 uh, all the way through 16, and then our section which we started last time, verses 17 to 25. And so, like I said last time we spoke, or I spoke on the matter uh, which Paul writes about, which is has to do with honoring elders, and we said last time that the command in verses 17 and 18 is that diligent elders deserve double honor. And I won't review uh, really any of that this evening. You can go back and listen to that message or talk to me about it later more. But it has to do with the idea that those who are laboring well in the ministry deserve what Paul calls double honor or additional honor. doesn't necessarily mean, you know, twice the amount of pay. Uh, I don't think Paul was quite thinking like that. I don't think really elders quite receive the kind of, you know, uh, salary in the sense of we think about it today, at least not early on in the church. Uh, but the idea is that they were to receive double, double the financial support uh, or, or additional du- uh, financial support as well as double honor, more respect within the church for their uh, diligent labor in the ministry. And those who re, are to receive that is, are those who rule well. That's kind of the governing, governing idea here in verses 17 and 18. But then Paul goes on in verses 19 through 25 to a more kind of serious and, uh, well, uh, less uh, happy matter, which has to do with disciplining elders. And uh, there, are, there are four commands here that we see three of which we'll cover this evening. One we'll cover at a later time, perhaps this coming Sunday evening, which we find uh, in verse 23. But the three uh, commands that we look at this evening in this passage that govern our understanding and the process of disciplining elders is this. I'll give the three to you, and then we'll look at them uh, in our time remaining. And the first is this, in verse 19, that accusations against elders requires two or three witnesses. Two at the minimum, three, you could have more than that, but at least two or three witnesses. That's the first imperative or command that Paul gives in regard to disciplining elders. The second command we find is in verses 20 and 21, and that is this idea, this command, that sinning elders are to be publicly rebuked. This, uh, this implies that uh, the accusation was proven to be true would take us to this next step. And we'll talk about that more in just a moment. But this is the second step or the second command that Paul gives, and, gives, and that is that sinning elders are to be publicly rebuked. And then finally, uh, at least what we'll try to cover this evening, we find in verse 22, And then verses 24 and 25, as they relate to verse 22, that elders are not to be appointed hastily. So let me just say those three again, and then we'll look at them. First, Paul commands that uh, accusations against uh, against an elder requires two or three witnesses. Secondly, sinning elders are to be publicly rebuked. And thirdly, elders are not to be appointed hastily. Let me begin, though, by reading verses 19 through 25, and then we'll look at it in more detail here. Paul writes to Timothy and says this, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in others, other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. So, as I said, we find in verse 19, Paul's second imperative regarding treatment of elders in this section and this section, that is 19 through 21 here, deals with how the church is to handle disciplining elders who are caught living in sin. <clears throat> of course, any accusation against someone that they're in sin is a serious matter. But accusations, against, uh, accusations of sin in the life of an, of an elder is a very serious charge a very serious charge and so paul begins then with a prohibition which is to not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses the word receive here means to believe something as true and respond accordingly so you know don't don't get confused and think paul means you know they start to talk and you know, say, no, 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 don't tell me. You know, it's not what it means to receive here. You know, he can, they should hear the accusation, but they should not just uh, so readily accept it to be true without first verifying it, the evidence, uh, making sure there's, there's uh, valid evidence to prove that it's true. Timothy then is being instructed to not hastily act on one man's words. Remember, he says two or three witnesses. So one fellow comes, makes an accusation. Uh, That's not wrong. He should feel free to do that. But that accusation should not be accepted as true unless there is at least another additional uh, person that comes and also brings the same accusation and can, you know, uh, prove that it's true the idea here is not that you know uh, man a goes and grabs b and says hey come with me as i share this accusation no man b has to have witnessed this issue himself uh you know it's not like grabbing your friend and just having him kind of come along and now we have you know now we have what we need that's not uh, what Paul's saying here there must be, the idea is that there must be enough evidence that proves the accusations to be true. It can't just be, uh, you know, one man's vendetta that he wants to go out, you know, he's out to get the pastor. And so, you know, he's always bringing accusations. This, uh, this mitigates that possibility by saying there has to be at least one other person, if not two or more. Now, Paul, though, you know, listen here, Paul is not showing partiality toward elders You know, by saying there has to be more than one witness. What he's doing is actually guarding elders of the church from uh, capricious accusations. From those who, as I said, you know, maybe have it out for the pastor. They don't like him for whatever reason. And so, uh, you know, they're always looking for some way, you know, some dirt to get on him. The elders here are not being given special treatment, per se, by having this requirement as even uh, the Old Testament Jew was to be treated in the same manner. Why do I say that? Well, the requirement for two or three witnesses was established all the way back in the Old Testament by God in the Mosaic Law. Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6, uh, has this law laid out that in order for an accusation uh, to be received, there has to be two or three witnesses. Now, we see this reiterated in Deuteronomy 19.5 as well. We won't turn there for sake of time, but you can keep that in your mind and look it up later. I'll write it down. Without the evidence of two or three witnesses, even in the Mosaic law, a person, did you know, could actually not be put to death. Even someone that committed murder, it was required that there was at least two or three witnesses. And so, going back to what I said earlier, any kind of accusation is a serious matter, and God treats it that way. This law protected, in the Old uh, Old Testament here, this law that we find in Deuteronomy, protected innocent people from being punished on the account of one man's testimony. Again, not that that testimony was illegitimate in and of itself, but it needed to be uh, backed up by others. As I said, even murderers could not be put to death by the testimony of one person. Numbers chapter 35, verse 30, also teaches us this as well. Jesus also, you may remember, quotes this passage in Deuteronomy, in chapter 17, verse 6. He quotes this in the Matthew 18 passage on church discipline. In Matthew 18, in that passage there, this Uh, the bringing of two or three witnesses is uh, actually what we would say the second step in the church discipline process. Step one, you might remember in Matthew 18, is to admonish the brother one-on-one. And if he doesn't hear you, then step two would be to bring another witness or two along. And so in our passage here, really, we kind of skip over. We don't really skip over step one. Uh, Step one would be someone to bring an accusation, but then there has to be a step two in order for the accusation to be received. They have to have another witness of, of the sin. So in the case of elders, there must be two or three witnesses to begin with for the accusation to be evaluated. If there are two witnesses of this elder's sins, then the church is to take those accusations, evaluate them, To ensure that they are indeed true Because there may be instances Where the accusation proves false Someone misheard something Thought they saw something That didn't actually happen uh, Or maybe maybe they're making it into something That's really not there And so it's possible that the accusation May prove to be false If that's the case Then there is no further action needed It stops there We could say it stops here And in our passage this evening at verse uh, you know, verse 19 because the accusation is not true. But that's not always the case. Oftentimes, probably more often, it does prove to be true. And so if it does, Paul then gives detailed instructions on what to do next, how to discipline these elders. And we see this in verses 20 and 21. And uh, I broke this into three kind of questions that we can answer as we look at these two verses. It's really Paul that's answering these kind of implicit questions. and that is, how are elders to be disciplined? Number one, the second question, where are elders to be disciplined? And thirdly, why are elders to be uh, disciplined in the presence of all? The how, though, how are they to be disciplined? Well, Paul says at the beginning of verse uh, 20 that elders living in sin are to be rebuked. They are to be rebuked. The word rebuke means to express strong uh, disapproval of someone's action, to reprove or correct them verbally, to address the matter head on, and to demonstrate uh, a disapproving kind of word toward them. Uh, about their sin. Any sin that uh, causes an elder to violate the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, 1-7, to remember that passage we looked at, the qualifications for elders. Any sin that violates those qualifications is grounds for this rebuke, uh, at the very least. And so, elders are first to uh, the first thing that he addresses here is how they are to be treated or how they are to discipline them, and that is that they are to be rebuked. We uh, answer the following question then that Paul has here, and that is where are elders to be disciplined? Or put it this way, where are the elders to be rebuked, the sinning elder? And Paul tells us exactly where. He says in verse 20, those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all, in the presence of all. This means that the rebuke is not to be done privately, but publicly. Not privately, but publicly. The word all here refers to the church membership here in this context. Some, uh, some surmise or uh, believe that maybe it means in the presence of all the elders, You know, think of a larger church that maybe has multiple elders. Um, And so some take this to mean that they are to be rebuked in the presence of all the elders, which would be a limiting kind of idea. It would then uh, not include the rest of the church. Uh, that, That may be the case, but I think there's good reason to believe that Paul has the whole church in mind, which would certainly include then the rest of the elders, not just limited to, you know, those in the pew, and so Timothy was being is being instructed here, and where by us as well, that uh, an elder who is in sin is to be rebuked in the presence of all. Timothy was to bring then the matter before the whole church. Now, for some of you, this may seem come as quite a shocking idea, especially if you live what uh, you know we may say a more private life. You know, a person that doesn't like you know people to know much about their business, their personal life. This may come as quite shocking. What we're going to talk about someone else's problems in the church. Well, uh, I believe part of that uh, is something we need as a as individuals and as a church to get over. That in the Christian body, in the in the the church body, there is not as much of a private life uh, that we we might think. Uh, In fact, uh, we're to share our lives with one another. We're to, uh, Brother Drew often loves to talk about this the accountability that we're to have with one another, the openness, the transparency. You know, that doesn't mean you have to share everything that's on your mind or happened, you know, uh, the day before. But we are not called to live uh, secluded lives amongst the brethren. And so maybe you find this quite shocking, but Paul says this is what is to happen and we have to obey it according to God's word. Part of the reason, though, here, um, you know, maybe this also causes you to tremble some and think, oh, no, the next time I confess some sin to pastor, am I going to hear it from the pulpit on Sunday? You know, (laughs) I don't think so, at least in most, most cases. But the idea here is that elders are treated much stricter. In the church in the life of the church because of their position of leadership and that is one of the distinctions here they are leading the church they are the under shepherds of the church and so sin in their life the moral failure of a leader in ministry is is serious business because it affects more than just them that's a little bit of the difference between you know the person in leadership and the person in the pew who sins Certainly, he has, his decision has an effect on himself, his family, and to some extent, the church, certainly, but more so the pastor who is to be leading the church. It, uh, his sin affects the entire congregation, whether it be because of some moral failing or some, uh, some bad behavior that could rub off, lead the church astray uh, by a bad example. The problem, too, with this, you know, if if you keep it quiet, you decide, you know, I'm not going to obey Scripture, I'm going to keep it private. The problem with this is that when kept quiet, it often breeds misunderstanding about the situation. Uh, It breeds gossip, it breeds confusion, and oftentimes division in the church. And that is one of the reasons, then, it cannot be kept private. It needs to be addressed publicly. It needs to be taken care of. Uh, publicly and and properly. But there's uh, a, a deeper reason here too, more than just that, uh, you know, the reason I just gave. In fact, Paul gives this very specific reason why they are to be rebuked and why it is to be done in the presence of all. And that is, we find at the end of verse 20, the reason here, he says, just beginning at, verse, at the beginning of verse 20, he says, those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all, Here it is, that the rest also may fear. Paul tells Timothy that elders are to be rebuked publicly so that the rest also may fear. This is the purpose statement. A pastor on Sunday mornings, I believe, during Sunday school, has been talking about logical relationships. And so uh, I also try to practice that in my study And this is what we would call the purpose statement. The reason why they are to be publicly rebuked is so that those others, all others, may also be in fear or may fear. This gives us the reason why a sinning elder must be rebuked before the church. The act of publicly confronting, correcting sin in someone's life, specifically in this case an elder, has this effect, it puts fear in the hearts of the whole church, including other elders as well. Now you might ask what kind of fear is Paul talking about here? What is he referring to um, you know for maybe you haven't you have in your mind right now fear of one's own sin being exposed like we just talked about a moment, so maybe that's the kind of fear you think Paul is talking about or the fear that comes to your mind when we talk about this. It could also be the fear of sin's consequences, not only the rebuke, you know, the public, you know, kind of embarrassment, but also the consequences that unfold afterward. Or perhaps Paul has in mind the fear of God. A public rebuke in this sense may elicit any of these feelings fear of one's own sin being exposed, fear of the consequences of sin, fear of God. It may elicit any of these feelings in the hearts of those present. But I would venture to say, properly motivated fear is one that contemplates not, oh no. Perhaps my own sins will be exposed, or oh no, you know what are the consequences of my own sin? Those are you know obviously uh, you know it's obvious why someone might think of that, but a properly motivated fear is one that contemplates the reality of god 's hatred of sin, and I think that's the fear that God or that Paul is speaking about here it 's a fear of God in general, a reverence toward God, but a reverence toward the the, or acknowledgement that God hates sin. And so why are we doing this? We're doing this because of God's hatred towards sin, and that should then cause me to evaluate my own life and say, is there any area in my life in which God would be displeased with and that I'm not revering God uh, in this area? That is a true fear of God, one who sits there and contemplates the situation in that way. That's the kind of fear that I think Paul is desiring to be produced uh, in the lives of those who are present in this situation. Confrontation, therefore, like this, if you want to call it that, can have a positive sanctifying effect upon the whole church as it causes God's people to be introspective. You know, you're looking at their life, in the sin that has beset them, and hopefully there is some compassion, especially if they're repentant, but then it causes you at the same time to look, be introspective as well and say, is there a sin in my life that I'm not dealing with that I need to? Sin that I may be harboring? Or maybe there's not, but you're sitting there thinking, God, help me to avoid the very sin that has beset this brother. That's a fear of God as well, saying, Lord, help me not to follow in that path, because I know I could. I'm not so high and mighty and pr- proudful to think I, I couldn't as well, so help me, Lord. Therefore, the use of public rebuke does not only teaches us that elders are accountable to the church, that is certainly uh one of the reasons for public rebuke, but it also produces a healthy fear in the heart of God's people. It has a, a, an individual and, I think, corporate sanctifying work in which it pushes the church to a new level of spiritual maturity and also purifies the church at the same time. Now, based on what we have learned, uh, to accuse an elder of sin and rebuke him publicly is a very Serious matter, which is why Paul charges Timothy, or the church in this case too, along with Timothy, who you know should be following Timothy and his leadership. It it um, it it encourages them in the light of the fact that this is serious to not show prejudice or partiality when disciplining an elder. Paul says this; he warns him about this. He says in verse twenty-one, "I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels." that you observe these things, that is what Paul has just said uh, in verses 19 and 20, without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. It could uh, be very easy in certain cases, uh, especially, you know, you have you know, perhaps a plurality of elders who love each other, who are, uh, or maybe in some case, have some discord as well. And it can be easy to allow uh, personal interests to interfere in such situations. It's already hard enough that you know, you're dealing with a sin issue, and then take in your own personal interest, your own flesh, in the way it wants to react to these situations, and it could easily lead to demonstrating a prejudice toward someone or partiality toward another. And so Timothy is, to, to the best of his ability, and the rest of the elders in the church to put aside those personal interests and to weigh all the facts in the the situation, to look at the facts to the best of his ability before making a judgment regarding an elder. Perhaps this takes, you know, you, you receive the accusation, you get a second and third witness, you evaluate it, it proves true, and in certain situations you may want to act quickly other times you may want to take a moment, a day or two or more, and think through the situation and how are we going to deal with this, you know, what are we going to say, in order to not allow these personal interests to interfere. Neither. Uh, so Timothy was not to show uh, prejudice toward an elder just because he perhaps had some, uh, you know, some difference of an opinion you know perhaps they didn't jive you know in their personalities whatever the case may be at the same time Timothy was not to show partiality or preferential treatment by dismissing an accusation oh he could never do that i know him well he could do that cuz we're all sinners that would be showing partiality just dismissing an accusation or failing to publicly rebuke the elder because Well, you know, you just can't believe it's true. Or you like that person too much and you say, well, let's just kind of take care of this privately uh, for your interest, you know, to save you the embarrassment. No, that's not right. The pastor, Timothy in this case, is to be unbiased and fair in his judgment, like a witness who is under an oath, you know, in a courtroom setting to testify the whole truth, nothing but the truth to put the personal interests aside and say, what are the facts and the facts only? Timothy's accountability for how he judges is to be like a, um, well, put it this way. Timothy's accountability in this situation and how he judges is to be like a human judge in a court system. You know, a human judge makes you know, some kind of vow or agreement to uphold the law. You know he swears to uphold the law that is his Bible, you know, so to speak, and in one sense, you know that's the image here, but he has a higher accountability than the law of the land. Timothy has the accountability before God, and that is serious business, and that's why Paul then gives Timothy this charge he he charges him before God, not before the law of the land, not before you know some Uh, you know, some person that swears a judge in, or, you know, however that works. I don't know all the details of it. Timothy is charged before God, the creator, before Christ Jesus, our Lord, and before the elect or the holy angels, not to show prejudice or partiality. This charge that Paul then gives here intensifies the seriousness of the act of accepting an accusation against an elder, rebuking him, disciplining him, because the discipline is not only being done in the presence of the church body, publicly, we said, but also in the unseen presence of God and the Lord and all his holy angels. This charge should not keep a church from, from disciplining an elder because, oh no, you know, God is seeing this. That's, the idea is not to dissuade them from you know, accepting a charge and disciplining accordingly, especially if sin exists. Rather, the idea here is that it should give uh, Timothy and the church thereby pause before hastily doing something that uh, should not have been done. Receiving that accusation and then disciplining. Making sure instead that it's done properly according to God's word because they are accountable to God. And the judgment they make in the presence of God's people is a a judgment decision before God as well. Well, our time has run out this evening. Uh, We're not going to get to verses 22 and the following. We'll leave that for later on, but I hope... Uh, from this, we uh, causes us to pause and think. You know, some of this, uh, you may think, what's you know, what's the application for Thursday morning? Well, it's not maybe so much that as it is a uh, it causes us to be ready. Hopefully, this doesn't have to happen in our near future, but if it does, it allows us to say, you know what, you know, in those situations, people begin to scramble and things happen that maybe shouldn't. But we can be a church that says, you know what, God's word has something to say about this. We need to do it properly. We need to honor God's word. We need to make sure that this is addressed because uh, God is watching us and uh, watching over his church, and uh, we have accountability to, to deal with this like God has taught us to. And so I pray that that uh, will not happen for us anytime soon or in any other church, but if it does, we need to honor God by doing this let's close in a word of prayer Heavenly Father pray now as we go that you would bless us keep us from those sins which so easily beset us Lord Lord keep your Lord your under shepherds Lord corporately I speak all those that are in your true church keep them Lord faithful to you keep them from having to oh Lord uh, walk down this this path Lord, may we live in fear now so that we don't have to fear, live in fear then in the moment of, that, of those happenings. Lord, help us to learn to fear you now, live for you, revere you in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.